Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Every time we got a corner, the coaching staff said, well, is that a corner for us? I think we'll have a little touch. And they're drinking whiskey, you see. Welcome to Coffee and Football. My name is Sebastian Alvarado, and I'm the host of this long-form interview style podcast, where each week I sit down with some of the most interesting and influential people involved in the game. In this week's episode, I speak with Bruce Grobelar. And let's get the pronunciation right. I believe it's Grobelar. Grobelar, yeah. He's a former professional player with a career spanning over 20 years. The club that most people associate him with is Liverpool, where he spent 13 years. We discuss his amazing life and career journey, from the early days in the bush war in Rhodesia, to becoming a Liverpool legend, to the match-fixing accusations and a court case that took several years and shaped the latter part of his playing career, to where he is today as the goalkeeper coach of an ASL team out of a fury. So without further ado, please enjoy. Welcome to Coffee and Football. It's a great pleasure having you. Thank you very much indeed. It's brilliant to, go, uh, to be on this uh, Coffee and Football. <laughs> <laughs> How are you doing today? Very good. Yeah. Uh, did you guys have practice today? Or? Yeah, we, we came in and we um, came and gave them a new structure and a new shape. And so we're working on that this week. In, in what sense? Is it something that hasn't been working so far? Well, it's just um, something that we we've been conceding goals. Now we we want to stop conceding goals. We had the best. Well, we we have the best goalkeeper in the league. In my in my eyes, he was the best goalkeeper last year last season. Uh, this year, he, you know, we've we've let in five goals in three games. So it's very very similar to last season. At the beginning of last season, we let in five goals in three yeah. games. There. Um, just a quick question, and it's a typical question that, that I have to ask since the theme is coffee and football. Uh, do you drink coffee? Yes, I do. How do you drink it, and where do you get it from? Uh, I've got a Nespresso coffee machine, and I have Nespresso all the time. You can have a, a Grande Espresso or a Picana, and otherwise then you have a coffee latte with the, with the milk. I typically do these in twos, actually, in, in New York. But this time we're we're in Ottawa. Uh, why don't you tell me about where we are and, and the setting? Well, we're sitting in my little cubicle in the TD Place, which is the home of Ottawa Fury, uh, Ottawa Red Blacks, and uh, the Ottawa 67s ice hockey. Phenomenal stadium. Nice little area. Hope it's quiet enough for you. But 
we'll we'll get uh, some people coming through. Don't worry. Fantastic. Um, what what are you up to these days? So you you obviously work with the with the Ottawa Fury. So just take me through a little bit more what what that looks like and what your role specifically is in this. Well, I was um, asked to come here uh, 2014 in the fall season. Um, I got a phone call from the then uh, coach Mark De Santos. They had lost their goalkeeping coach, and um, Mark was a you know he didn't know where to turn to. So um, I think he he went to the Canadian Soccer Association. I think with Nick Dasovich, and he asked Nick, "Do you know anybody you know that I can use as a goalkeeping coach?" Right. So Nick gave him this, this note. He said, "Listen, phone Bruce. This is his number. You know he he did his A license. Yeah. Uh, phone him and see what happens." So I get the phone call, and uh, the phone call went. Similar to this. Hello, Bruce. Um, my name is Mark DeSantos. I said, hello, Mark, how, how are you doing? He says, I'm with Ottawa Fury and we've lost our goalkeeping coach and I've just given your name by Nick Desovich and uh, he tells me that you know something about goalkeeping. I said, yeah, a little bit. He said, uh, what are you doing at the moment? I said, well, I'm in Newfoundland and with my family and I'm coaching a team here and in the top level here, but it's, you know, not, not as good as the ANASL by a long shot. But it's a you know local regional league, and I coach that team, and I play for that team, and we got into the playoffs, and and I run the junior um, the side of the island. I coach the coaches to go out to the community, and that's that's what I do. He says, "Oh, so you work with amateurs?" I said, "Yes." And he said, uh, "Have you got any, have you had any experience with professional football?" And I said, "A little bit." He says, "Have you got a CV?" I said, "Yes." He said, please send it through, and then I'll, you know, look at it and give you a call back. So I sent it through. Um, an hour later, apparently what happened, he went into his office, and there was his brother and Martin Nash, his two assistants, and he said, listen, I've just got this name, Bruce. Do you know any Bruce that is a goalkeeper? So they looked at each other, and they went, you've got to be kidding me. He said, oh. So he had no idea. No. Bruce Grobler. Martin Mark says, Bruce Grubber, what's he what's he doing in Newfoundland? Well, of course, anybody would think that. So an hour later, he rang me, rang me back and he said, uh, Bruce, I'm very, very sorry. I said, listen, Martin, Mark, if, if you've got any, uh, if you've got another goalkeeper, because it's no, no, no problem, no skin on my nose. He says, no, I didn't know who I was talking to. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I said it's typical Canadian. That's yeah, all. yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's he's excused yeah. for this one, right? For sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, on on that note, actually, so how did you end up at uh, in Newfoundland? How did, oh, yeah, it, it's quite interesting because um, my wife and myself uh, were in England. She's in the medical profession, and uh, and she what she she said to me, if we ever try and have a child, uh, we will definitely have to move from England because the, the schooling is going down, the medical is certainly going down. Yeah. You either go private otherwise, and she doesn't want to, she, she likened it and said, I don't want to be a prostitute in my uh, field asking for people who haven't got money to be drugged. Yeah, She's an anesthesiologist. So, you know, I, 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 it's in my conscience, I cannot do that. If they need the operation that I need to do, yeah, you know, give them the drug. So 
she said, I want the, to go to a country where the medical services, as it was in the Britain 40 years ago, NHS, bang. First come, first serve, there we are, that's it. So we looked around the world and we pinpointed it everywhere. And, and, we, and I just said, listen, how about Canada? And Because you I, had some ex previous experience. Previous experience. Yeah. Uh, but she didn't want to go west coast because it was too wet. It's very similar to British weather. So I said, well, what about the east coast? And so I went over to Newfoundland. I, I liked it, but it was in the summer. I never experienced it in the winter. So went over in the summer. I liked it. Went back, brought my wife over the next summer. She liked it. Went back eight months later. We were over in Newfoundland. She had a, she got a job at the hospital. I went back over there to take over the, the football, the kids football as soon as I landed. But because my wife's, um, uh, papers took too long to come through. Where is she from? She's from South Africa. So her papers took eight months. And in the meantime, the guy that ran the junior program, he wanted to go back to uh, Leicester. And uh, he gave it to a, C a Canadian chap and just to look after until I get there. So when I get there, I said, listen, I'm here. I'm going to be taken over. He says, no, it's mine. It's like, it's my ball now. It's mine. I'm going to keep it. So I said, okay, you keep it. Five years later, they came to me and I said, listen, the foot Football's gone down the drink. Can you take over again? So that's what I was doing when Mark gave me a call. And even now when I go back, I give them the coaching um, new drills to do with the kids to upgrade, and then they go out to the community and they do that. Just giving back to where, where you live. I appreciate that kind of a philosophy because I think even politically speaking where where things have had it with privatization in so many parts of the world and and there are, and to your point there aren't perhaps that many countries that still have certain certain values when when yeah. it comes to that yeah doesn't mean that we're going to be in newfoundland for that long for four years we want to be out of there <laughs> <laughs> too much cold too much yeah. snow i was gonna ask I'm you sorry, about, i was gonna ask you about that 15 20 foot a year no 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 no. come yeah. on and this I, that's, is that's brutal I'm, i'm in new york and uh, and i'm suffering every year and i'm swedish believe it or not yeah so. but uh, listen i know in sweden you get snow but i'm telling you go to newfoundland go to cornerbrook and see how much snow falls in that place it's the highest snowfall city in the whole of canada really yeah and we, i ended up there <laughs> 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 Unbelievable. Um, take me through a, a typical day today, like uh, from the moment you get up, what time do you get up, what types of routines do you have, and, and then what, what does the rest of the day look like? Well, typical day, I get up at 5.30. Um, I get up and... Have you always been an early riser? Always. You know, started in the military, you have to do that, and or started before that, but when you went to school, you ride five miles to school, you have to get up very early in the morning, get on your bike and go. Um, so 5.30 for me was, you know, n not a problem at all. Even if you go to bed late, you get up very early. So in the morning you get to, you just do go through your routine. You have your hot water lemon and, you know, just a, a boiled egg or something like that and a little coffee, of course. And, uh, yeah, then you come into, come into the ground. And it's myself and Nicola if I'm... Um, 
from Serbia. He's with the, the Academy and he's the analyst, video analyst for us. And we come in, he comes into the office to do his video stuff. I go over to the other side. I do a little workout before the players come. And what, then kind, what kind of workout is that? Typically? Just uh, weights, you know. Mm -hmm. It's important to stay in shape for you, obviously. Absolutely. You know, uh, I, I, I can't run um, long distances now because of my knees. So it's just a little bit of burst. And then the boss comes in, he, we do the training session. I go fix up my goalkeepers and my exercises and uh, come in and wait for them. And the, the team come in with a typical day that the fitness coach has, their, has them first for strength work and then they come out into the field and they do their own thing. How would you describe your uh, your coaching style? So you came in about a year, year and a half ago. Uh, was there anything that you saw when, when you stepped into the team in terms of how the goalkeepers were working or had been working? Was there anything that you saw and that you needed to come in and, and do differently? Was there any new sort of training routines or ways of, of setting up the or structuring up the trainees? Well, what I look at uh, when I came in, first of all, I looked at how they used to train and what they used to do. And then I analyzed if the a game before warranted the uh, training sessions that they did. For instance, um, we are going to be playing against Edmonton. Edmonton played ball down the channels. So it's good for your goalkeeper to be high and if you can cut those balls off on the, on the left-hand side if we're playing high. If we're not, then it's normally getting back onto the line and crossing. So I do the training sessions, come to the line. I'm standing now on the line. I put a mannequin. It's either inside the mannequin or outside the goalkeeper's got to make a choice. And then I will do um, someone feeding me from outside the mannequin. Goalkeeper's got to make a choice and I play it back into the goal area. So it's typical what they're going to be trying to do. And also then crosses. Crosses near post, crosses far post. So our goalkeepers will do that. So you adapt it a bit on a week to week basis based week on who you're basis, playing. Yeah. Uh, Miami next week will be different because they play in a diamond and uh, they come through on the angles of the corner of the box area. So they'll be coming that way. If they go down the line, it's normal that we, we look at how they do it. But it's normally they come in at 45 degree angles into the area and they'll try and shoot from there. So we, we do all our work around that. Mm -hmm. Um, you obviously had a, a remarkable and uh, long career, and uh, and before we get get into the details of that, I'd like to just rewind the tape and start from the beginning and ask you a little bit about the uh, about the upbringing. So, uh, first, where were you born, and where did you grow up? I was born in Durban, South Africa, and uh, when I was two months old, my parents went up to Rhodesia. My father got a job on the railways in a little place called Sonoya, and my mother she got a a job in the shoe shop and she was the accountant and the uh, bookkeeper, storekeeper and uh, that's where we were, Samoa. And then we, my father was transferred to Salisbury which is the capital and that's where I started uh, my my schooling and, and my football career. In order to get to know you, what do I need to know about the place where you grew up? Well, if you look at the map now, it's called Harare and uh, that's where I grew up. Um, it's the capital city of uh, Zimbabwe. It's a predominantly Shona area, which is a, a tribe that speak the Shona language. Um, I did my junior schooling there and my first year of uh, high school in uh, 
Salisbury, Harare now. And then my mother moved to Bulawayo, uh, which is a Matabili, Ndebele area, which is a breakaway from the Zulu. And that's a different tribe. And when I went to that city, it was quite funny. In Harare, I was, in Salisbury, I played for an all-white team in a black league, in this league. When I moved to Bulawayo, I was one of three whites that played in the black side in this league. So we even played against Salisbury Kellys, which is the all-white team. And now, because I was playing for this black side, they give everybody a nickname. And my nickname was Jungle Man. <laughs> because they said, oh, this is not a white boy. This is a black man in a white man's skin. He's Jungle Man. So that's what they gave me. And and why was that? Because I was a goalkeeper. Because I was, I used to swing on crossbars and do them. So they gave me the Jungle Man. <laughs> Um, how, how was, I mean, we're, we're talking now, we're, we're roughly in the, what, early, mid seventies. Seventies, yeah. Yeah. And obviously things have probably changed a bit to, to where we are today. But if you, if you were kind of put that into perspective, uh, from, from people from the outside and for the younger people mm -hmm. today and, and sort of describe what, what it looked like back then, you know, in terms of obviously there was some conflict zones, there were yeah. things going on. You just mentioned, you know, the, the segregation that, that was happening and so on. Well, in Salisbury, when I was there, I played for an all-white side. So when I rode my bike to training for Salisbury Kellys, nobody, no, nobody worried. You know? It's in a white area and everything's cool. In Bulawayo, I lived in a white area. But then I had to go to training, so I got on my bike and I rode across the river, which means you're leaving the white area and going into the black area, which is a township and area, which was called Popoma and Zelikazi. And those areas had our training ground and barber fields, which was in Zelikazi and Popoma. And so as I'm dry, uh, riding across the bridge, about my third time riding across the bridge, there's a, I see a police car. And I saw him for two days, and he let me go. The third day, he said, no, you can't go in there. So I said, what do you mean I can't go in there? He says, no, it's dangerous in there. I said, but I've been here two, you know, two days before, and you said, he said, no, no, I think that you, it's getting too dangerous for you to go in there. I said, why? He says, because there's more and more Africans coming to the edge of the, the river when you're coming to, to ride your bike. I said, no, no, they're just fans. <laughs> and he said, what do you mean fans? He said, well, I play go in goal for them. So he followed me and all these guys running with me. Hey, Brucey, jungle man, brother, running with me and, uh, and going to the training. When he got to the training uh, at the stadium, he saw everybody. I shook hands with everybody. He just turned the vehicle and went back. So it's a difference. The difference was in Salisbury, it was okay. I was in a secure white area. But in Bulawa, I leave the white area to go to the black area. And it was a time of tension as well. The war had just started. Well, it was going on from 65, and it's now 74. And this is when I'm riding my bike over there. And he's thinking, well, you know, something could happen. But then, you know, you're playing for the local side. And that's the, in Bulawa, we had two very big, soccer teams, in the belly and then Zimbabwe Saints, which is the Shona people that were in, in that area. And they were big rivalry. And they, they were good, big, very good games in the Barberfields. 
40, 50,000 people in the stadium and then you riding your bike there. Yeah. And if, if you won, you're okay. If you lost, then there's a big ride. So now you got to ride your bike out of it. <laughs> and I'm a goalkeeper. <laughs> you had to yeah. be quick, huh? Oh, yes. <laughs> Try and get a lift up. <laughs> yeah, that's how it was in those days. Yeah. I, I think it says a little bit about the mentality that, that you had probably at a pretty early age. And, and I'm sure you've learned that at home in terms of not having any preconceived ideas of, of different people and so on. You're just one of them and, and you're there and you're playing football. For sure. Um, my, my father, when, when my mother moved to Bulawayo, my father left my mother and, and he stayed up in Harare and my mother moved to Bulawayo <coughs> and she dragged me with her. And then my father moved to another place near, uh, 175 kilometers away in, in the bush area. And, uh, next, he was going there, his brother who owned a farm just out there and he, but he was still on the railways. So for me, going to with my mother was, it had to be, you know, I, I left there going to Bulawayo and did my schooling, did my O-levels, finished my O-levels. And then I thought, well, I'm going to be a goalkeeper. I, I didn't know that I was on loan to the Madabilan Liners. We just won the, the, the league and the cup. And I tell my mother I'm going to be with Madabilan Highlanders. And she said, oh, yeah, you better phone the white team. So I phoned the white team to find out, you know, what's happened. Oh, I've just, we just sold you to another black side, but it's in, in Harare, in Salisbury. So I pack up my gear, get in my car, drive to Harare. I'm playing for Chubuku, Shumba, now that bl- black team that made beer. It's a brewery team. And I didn't like it because we had two, myself and Pasani Sabanda. Now Pasani Sabanda was the was a, a Rhodesian goalkeeper as well. And I didn't think it was fair that he, he played when they lost. And when we drew with me, they dropped me and put him in. So we had a conflict. And our manager was Jack Meager, a uh, Scotsman. And, uh, I didn't, I didn't take to Jack Meager. So I told Jack Meager to stick his team up his behind. And he said, well, that's it. Uh, I'll keep your, your, you know, your signature. You're right. You know, my right. And, uh, you won't play soccer again whilst, uh, you know, but he didn't realize that I only signed for two years. I then went into the army. Whilst in the army for two years, they disbanded. And, uh, I became a free, free agent. Yeah. So the only thing is he became the, the national manager. Oh, really? Whilst I was in the army and I was picked up for the team to play against South Africa. And he turned around and says, you haven't played for 18 months. So I'm not going to play you. They lost seven nil. But good thing you didn't play. And the, ne- and the next game. Yeah. Another manager put me straight in. We drew one one. Oh, there you go. There we go. Because it could have been your last cap, that first one, maybe. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, I want to ask you a little bit about the about your army time because obviously it's, it's something quite unique. But uh, um, even just before that, you were talking a little bit about your parents and what was the most important uh, advice that your parents gave you? Well, my father never really gave me any advice because he was. Uh, he was out, you know, working. Uh, my mother, she, she was the one that, uh, you know, made us grounded. Um, she would tell you straight if you, if you're on the right, you know, off the rails or not. 
And if you're completely off the rails, she'll she'll make sure that you you know, you know it. Um, all she said to me when I was young and uh, growing up, uh, before I went into the army, she said, uh, "Stay safe and make the right decision. And if you can't get home, make sure you get some place safe." And those are the three things. Well, because of you know war days. Yeah. If you can't get home, get someplace safe. Which, which, but if you think about it, you know you're in the middle of the bush and you only you got three other boys, chaps with you. If you can't get home, and there's many times where you get you know pinned down in skirmishes, get someplace safe, and you did. Wow. Um, on that note, so take me through how you know you went into the army how how was that process like and 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 what was the what was the experience and this is during the during the bush war yeah 75 i went in and uh we just went in naturally just blase about everything uh, but did, did you understand sort of the the larger picture of the of the conflict and every, every everybody did as soon as you get in the first thing that you're shown or dead bodies, bum, bum, bum. And they, the, the instructors look at you and see if you can actually handle it. Some people threw up on the, you know. Um, and then they showed you diseases. If you do things, you know, this is what you could catch if you don't use a condom, you know, and, then, and see if people are. After three days, you know, you pick out the, the guys that can handle it. Then they ask you to run, you know, laps of the airfield, which is, uh, you know, 25 Ks in a, in a, and you're just running laps. Who's the fittest? Boom. And they put you in the categories. Then you're going through your six weeks of training. Now, at the end of the six weeks, you find out who are the, the best marksmen, who's the best the runners, who's the best in, in, in medical, who's the best in, uh, Obstacles. Um, who's the best drivers? Well, six weeks, we we had a guess because for me, in in my six weeks, I never stayed in the barracks one weekend. First weekend, I went out under a blanket. Right, came back. The second weekend, I said to the or the second week. Week that we were there, I said to the major, I said, "Listen, it's a rugby season, yeah, and we've got a whole bunch of guys here that can play rugby. You make sure you get us a friendly on the weekend, and we'll go and play these guys." So what we did, we got them and we went out. We played a game of rugby, whilst all these other ones that couldn't play rugby, they were running, running laps, yeah, running laps and skirmishes and of obstacle causes. That was for the first uh, four weeks. The next two weeks, last two weeks, baseball season come up, rugby season's gone. Hey, captain, he says, yes, I'm a catcher. I said, I'm a thrower. Don't worry, we've got baseball people here. <laughs> so we made, <laughs> made a baseball team, off we go. And the baseball was longer than the than the, than the rugby because you play the game and then you stay in the pub afterwards and then they are oh, the truck will come and take you late, back later. So we had a good time. You go from there into the bush. We went to a place called um, Silver Springs, down in the valley. Just superb. Went along the river. You swap, uh, you know, border control. 
You just walk up and down, and you get to the bridge, and you go and see the Frelimo boys in the Mozambique side. Oh, yeah. Cigarettes. They want cigarettes because we've got a very good tobacco industry. So they swap a cigarette, and you give them chocolate. So chocolate's this side, and you get the cigarettes that side. Very good. Yeah. Christmas Eve, what are they here? If you already swapped your cigarettes and everything, you come back, all you hear is doop, 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 doop. And now they're mortaring us. They're throwing bombs at us. So now you got to dig just to, now you're going to put sandbags and put bunkers. Now you're in a bunker now. That was it. Christmas 1975. New Year's Eve. Bang. That was the war start for us. And these were pretty much the same guys that you were just trading with? No, they knew about the guys that were going to come in. And the guys that were going to come in, those are the ones that went dum dum dum. They're just harboring them. So this is this is it. the war started for us, and it wasn't just uh, wasn't border control then. Now right. now it's ambush, because they know that they might be coming across. So you're going to put a set of ambush. Four of you sitting in the bush and trying. Uh, they get information. There's there might be 175 guys coming. Oh, you're four of you sitting around there doing nothing. You shed yourself. How old were you around that time? I was 17. 17 years old. Yeah. So you had to become a man pretty quickly. 17 to 19, yes, I grew up very quickly. And you ended up uh, there for what? About two years. Two years. Two years. Okay. And I signed up to do one year. After the year, we had 33 days to go to until we finished. They turned around and they said, no, 18 months. The second time they said, we only had three days to go. We had a weekend. We came back on the, on the, uh, Thursday, gave our kit in on the Friday, having a party Friday night, Saturday night, Saturday night, we're having a big party, captain comes in, get your guys, go and get your kit, Sunday we off in the bush again, <laughs> three days to go, the Sunday we left to go and do another six months, and that last six months, that was danger, because we were a mobile unit by then, we, we four of us used to I was in charge of three others, machine gunner, medic, and a signaler. And we, that was a, a, a unique unit. I was a tracker, so I was my uh, medic uh, studio and the machine gunner. And then the radio guy was, he's a marksman as well. And those units used to get picked up by helicopter. So when there's a contact somewhere, bang, bang, contact, contact, three choppers come pick up 12 of us, drop us right in the middle of the contact, and then you got to find the enemy and follow. So that's what we did. And then our medic unit, was all our trucks, they used to come. So when we used to get uh, dropped in, they used to go to the nearest point, set up camp then, and we used to drop back into the, that camp and just wait for the helicopters to come again, boom, and we go another somewhere else. And then the trucks follow. So... <laughs> You could be there for two, three days without the trucks anywhere near you. So that's how it was. What are the, uh, if any, what are the main learnings you, you've brought with you from, from that whole experience? I just think back to what my mother used to say. If you stay safe and if, if you can't get home, make sure you get to a place that is safe. And that's, that's basically what we did. 
if we're in a contact, yes, there are going to be some injuries. We, I lost two people out of my sticks in various times. Um, and we had to be replaced. They had to be replaced. One guy never even got to the ground. They dropped three of us. <laughs> Took him back because he got shot up the leg. Like that, boom, up to his knee. So they took him back, got another one, dropped another one. Thank you very much. Off we go. So that's how it is. Ward leaves it. Hinchcliffe bends it in. Oh, terrific save by Gromola. A fantastic save from Jackson's header. Well, we said at the start the length of service that Gromola has had for Liverpool in playing games against Everton. But all those years, he kind of made many better stops than that one. So how did it then happen that you you got out of there and, and then you continued to to play football? Well, it, there was a decision to be made. As soon as we came out of the army, we knew that uh, the war had intensified and the structure was if you're going back to work, you'll do six weeks at work and then six weeks in the army. That'll be a six weeks on six and six. That's not going to happen with me because there were two days when we were going to be free another six months and we lost about four or five people in the in the unit and uh, for the next six months we lost four or five people well, six with the fellow that tried to uh, sorry two yeah six eight eight with the two trucks that tried to drive over the cliff you know because they've been moggy you know they can't stand so I had to make a decision what do I do so what did I what I did is I said to my mother listen I'm going to Durban And I went back to Durban. I, she said, why are you going back there? I said, listen, you took me away from there. I want to go and see what it's like. So I went down there, got a job uh, selling cars and played for Durban City. And that's where I signed up for Durban City. It was a, not a fully professional side. It was a semi-pro side. And I played there for Durban City. Yeah, we won again. We won the cup. With them, and then the next league we went into was uh, um, the Indian League. Then left the uh, White League, and then they went to an Indian League, and they could have gone to the Black League. So I went there, and then I got my caller papers. I was there 18 months. I got my caller papers from from South Africa to go in the South African Army. And I said to the fellow, "Hold on, man! I've been two years in there, and now they." And it said, their corporal Krobler, they knew that I was a corporal. You hereby notified that in six weeks' time you'll go to 62 Squadron. And I went, ah, it's all the nutters that came out of the army. They went to South African Army to join the South African Army. And they are in Angola, fighting those boys in Angola. And that's 62 Squadron. Yeah. They're going to send me to 62 because I've already been in the war in Rhodesia. I said, no, no, no. So I made sure that I got on a plane and went to UK. And the friend that I was staying with sent me to sent me to West Bromwich Albion to see if I could get a work permit. And how did that go? Six weeks, couldn't get a work permit. So I ended up going to Vancouver. And that's how I ended up in Vancouver. But how so how did Vancouver come about around then? Well, whilst in whilst at uh West Bromwich Albion, um, Tony Waiters was over in Europe trying to find a midfielder and a goalkeeper. 
And Tony Waddington, who was the assistant manager at uh, West Bromwich Album, said, make sure you get to Derby County, see Tony Waiters and do the training session. And that's what I did. I went to Derby County, did a 45-minute training session with him, and he said, yes, we, we want to sign you. So now I'm going to go back home, get my stuff, jump on the plane, go back to Rhodesia, Walked into my mother's place. She said, oh, Bruce, you're back home. You couldn't make it in the, in football. Now we're going to get you a proper job. No, no, no. I'm going to <laughs> I'm going to Vancouver. Okay, when? Thursday. This is the Tuesday when I land. On Thursday, I'm going. So it'll probably be Friday, but Thursday I'll know. The phone call will come. The phone call didn't come. So Friday morning, my stepfather takes me to the railways. They made a job for me there on the railways. Refrigerator mechanic. Look after all the rolling stocks and make sure that yeah. the refrigerator is working. So you go up and down the lines, you're looking at the, yes, yeah, fine, good. Close it up, yeah, okay, good. Walking up and down. And what was going through your head? I mean... No, no, what was going through my head? You know, where's the phone call? So <laughs> I worked Friday. Yeah. Saturday morning. Saturday afternoon off. Sunday off, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Thursday night, get a phone call. Boom. Friday morning, I walked into the, the workshop and I said, Hey, foreman, you can stick the refrigerator mechanic up your heart. I'm gone. He says, but we get money. I said, give it to all those guys there. I don't want it. I'm gone. <laughs> and I worked. That was it. And you're gone? And then I'm gone. Vancouver. And you landed in Vancouver. Landed in Vancouver, got picked up by Les Wilson, taken straight to the hotel. I said, thank you very much. He says, no, get your boots. We've got a game tonight. And I played in the game. The same night? The same night. Right, so Friday. I get the full call for Thursday night. Go to get your ticket. Go and fly to South Africa. Go to the embassy. Get your visa. Get back to the airport, fly from there to Britain, Heathrow Airport, land in the mornings, about 8 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, there's your flight, Vancouver. You're going to land at 5 o'clock. Land at 5 o'clock, get to the hotel, 6 o'clock, no, there's a game at 7, and I'll play. And there you are. Yes, 1-1 one, one we drew with Seattle in the reserves. I said, thank you very much. No, that's okay. Have a nice day tomorrow. Tomorrow night, you're playing again. So I had two games in two days. Then they said, okay, we sign you. Now you can go on holiday. And so I went to Scotland. Oh, really? <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> went up in, I went to Scotland on holiday yeah. for Christmas. He said, be back the third. I was back the third. So you were off for a couple of weeks and just... Yeah, oh yeah, just chill out. That's for sure. But how how was the experience? I mean, you come from from completely the other side of the world with with everything that's going on there. I mean, both yeah. politically and culturally, and, and and so on. And you end up all the way up there, up up north. Like how how did you handle that? It was it was something that I dreamt of. Yeah. Even in the army, I said to the three guys, you know, if we if I get out of this, I'm going to play for Liverpool, and they went. <laughs> We're going to drop off in the middle of the shite. You can get shot. I said, yeah. He said, well, we've got an ambush here. You can get shot in the ambush. I said, yeah. But okay, so I've lived my dream. I wanted to play for Liverpool. I ended up playing for Liverpool. It took a long time around the houses. In between time in Vancouver, I came to Crewe. 
played 24 games in Crewe. That was a loan deal from loan deal from Vancouver to Crewe because I only played three games in the first team in my first year in Vancouver. So they said, "Oh, we're going to send you to a team in the UK." So I went to Crewe. Mm-hmm. What and division was that back then? Fourth division. They were 92nd in the football league when I was there. When oh, wow. where I was sent yeah. there, they were 92nd. That's the last place in all four divisions, right? And we, with that, we didn't end up in the end of the season there. We ended up in 82nd, 86th. So we had done our job. Six places off the bottom. We didn't. Uh, we weren't lost anymore. We never lost a game after Christmas. Um, we 24 games we drew and won 20, 23 games. During this whole time, you had that drive. That yeah. I'm going to end up playing at Liverpool. Yes. Yeah. Where, where did that come from? The uh, the idea of Liverpool. I was a Derby County fan because they played the, the baseball ground. And when I found out there was no baseball played then, I said, that's it. You're <laughs> out of here. I'm going to take this bird. Yeah, that bird, Liverpool. Oh, there's a lot of bird. I like that one. So that's really how it started. Really? Yeah. Wow. Because, I mean, it's, it's, it's... As a kid, you didn't know. No, and very different times. Yeah. We're old films. Right. Derby County in those days were quite good. They were big, yeah. Yeah, Liverpool were, were big. Yeah. Yeah. Those are the ones. Yeah. And then after the loan, you, you ended up going back to uh, to Vancouver and the NASL. And this is uh, back in the... 1980-81, in the coming into yeah. 81. And uh, that's when the Aztecs and the Cosmos yeah. and, and all those teams were in the league. Played all of them. You know, played against Cubius, you know, Cruyff, yeah. Beckenbauer. Pele, Best, Rodney Marsh. You know, there were teams that you looked at and you thought, oh, Chinaglia, Georgie yeah. Chinaglia. Oh, goodness gracious, you know, you played against some big, big teams and, and big names. And the North American Soccer League in those days were, was huge in, in North America. We used to get 40,000 at the Empire Stadium. You know, in New York, you used to get 30,000. So it, it was a big deal, you know. Los Angeles in the in the Rose Bowl against the Aztecs, we used to get uh, sixty thousand. Wow! If it was a you know a big game, yeah, it was. They were big deal. And how was the how was the level? Okay, the level was a, a little bit of a change. You know, they made it spread out thirty five yard line. Only after the thirty five yard line, you you get an offside. But the the level was to make the, make sure it entertaining with the passing and the moving and the, and it it was good, and they made it a razzmatazz with the the shootout. Yeah, you know, thirty five yard line, five seconds to score a goal if you draw it. You know, it's like a putting a little bit of hockey in there. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> What's this all about? <laughs> <laughs> but I think they even had it at the in the early days of the MLS. They did, yes. They they, they had yeah. some of that then too. Yeah, yeah I remember yeah. that. But then uh, FIFA will always turn around and say, boom, you've got to conform, otherwise... Of course. Otherwise you don't get uh, sanctioned. So uh, you end up there for, for a couple of seasons, and then the, well, the big move comes and to, uh, to Liverpool. How, how did that come about? I, I was with San Diego. We played San Diego the one night. We drew, and then we lost in the shootout. So I'm lying in, in the bath in Vancouver and Empire Stadium. Tony Waitis comes straight in and says, hey, get yourself out of the bath. There's two very important people come to see you. I said, oh, yeah. 
because in at um, Crew Alexander, Tony Waddington, our manager, used to say, "There's two very important people coming to see you: that's Tom Saunders and um, Bob Paisley." Right. Right. Don't do something stupid, you know, that sort of thing. So I'm thinking two very important people. So I said to Tony Waiters, I, I, I'll guess who they are. I said, Bob, President Tom Saunders. He says, how did you know? I said, it's taken them a long time to get from crew to come and see me because they, they were supposed to see me at crew. And this is about, what, like a year later or something? Yeah, this is now into 1981, right, where I played for um, crew 7980. So it's taken them. So I get out of the bath and I go into his office and he introduces me, Mr. Saunders. How do you do? How do you do, Mr. Saunders? Um, Mr. Paisley, Mr. Paisley, how do you do? And he says, um, Mr. Paisley would like to ask you a few questions. He says, uh, yeah, Grobble D. Jag? Because he didn't know how to say my surname. Grobble D. Jag. You know, he's like a, he, oh, that, that fellow Dougie, uh, Dougie, Dougie Doings. <laughs> Yeah, and that sort of thing. So he grabbed the jack, would you like to play for Liverpool? I said, of course I'd like to play for Liverpool. It'd be an honour. He looks at uh, me, he says, okay. And he looks at Tom and he says, Tom, let's go. And they walked out the door. And that's they it. They just turned around and walked out the door. Yeah. Boom. So now I'm thinking. Well, what happened? Well, I thought there was a, you know, a couple of questions. Yeah, that's, everything's okay. Boom. You can go. So I go back out. Tony Waiters comes to me, he says, yeah, meeting went well. I said, what do you mean, what meeting? It was one question. <laughs> yeah, okay, six weeks. Tony Waiters comes to me after training. Um, come into the office, I'm going to have a word with you. I said, okay. He says to me, how much uh, big luggage have you got? What do you mean, what do you mean, uh, big luggage? What, what heavy stuff have you got? I said, I've got a waterbed. So he said, well, you can't take that. I said, no, I'll give it to Carl Valentine. He likes it. <laughs> he says, well, what else have you got? I said, everything's, you know, hired. Yeah. It's on a hired. I've just got my clothes. He says, well, pack up. Here's your ticket. You're going tonight, by the way. And that was at lunchtime. Go home and throw everything in the boom. He says, I've sold you for 250,000 pounds. I said, where am I going? Liverpool. Off you go. So I look at my ticket. No, this one, it's got London. So they sent me to London to go to Liverpool. Right. Yeah. And then what happened? Got to London, rang up Liverpool, mm-hmm. and I said, Mr. Paisley, um, Bruce Grobel, I've just landed at Heathrow. He says, yeah, you know where Manchester is? And he puts the phone down. And I'm thinking, so I got the information. How do I get to Manchester? She said, well, you can go by car, you can walk, you can cycle, by bus, train. But you can fly. Okay, one-way ticket, boom. Get to Manchester, trolley out. Come out there, 36 miles down the road. Think that Liverpool can be there? Of course, yes. Nah. Phone them up. Excuse me, may I speak to Paisley? Mr. Paisley? Didn't get Mr. Paisley, got the secretary. The secretary said, yeah, Mr. Grobley, uh, do you know where Liverpool is? Puts the phone down. Hire a car, drive into Liverpool. Don't know where I'm going. Get there, and the gates are shut. So now I'm looking for hotels, and I go into the hotel, biggest hotel, right at the very end. Boom. I've been exhausted. All the other hotels goes into this hotel, come through the swinging door, go to the desk. I didn't even notice anybody here. 
on the right hand side, go to the desk, excuse me, have you got a rooms for tonight? The Adelphi Hotel, little big one. She says, no, I'm sorry. As soon as I turned around, I saw Bob Paisley getting a, receiving a one pound note from Tom Saunders, mm-hmm. giving Bob Paisley a one pound note, and Tom Saunders saying, I thought he'd never get you. So they did it on a one pound bet that I wouldn't get there in the day. And this is how what Liverpool guys were like in those days. <laughs> Big star, two hundred fifty thousand pounds. Yeah, let's see if he can get you. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. Uh, Nowadays, you know, they have to. Excuse me, I want a chauffeur-driven car. Oh yeah, you, know, you fly me with private jet yeah. or helicopter, whatever. Did you take it in a in a good way, like in, in a good mood, or? Listen, when, where where I came from, and my journey to get there, I'd have done anything. Yeah. I'd even walked. Yeah, that's for sure. So, what was your um, so now you've you've landed at Liverpool, uh, which, which was obviously your your dream to to end up in. Um, what was the initial time like, and what were your your initial impressions, and and how how did you take that on? Because now you're obviously stepping up a a, a level, another level. Yeah, yeah um, I took advice from various people that I played with. Mm-hmm. My captain at crew. He said to me, he's a chap, Bob Scott, that's it, Bob Scott, Bobby Scott. He said to me, listen, Scouser, he said, listen, uh, let me give you a word of advice. Don't buy a house in Liverpool. I said, why? He says, because if you buy a house in Liverpool, you'll be another George Best. I said, what do you mean? He says, uh, there's too much temptation in Liverpool and you get, you'll be on the, on the drink all the day. So I said, where should I buy? He said, just down the road from me. So I said, well, that's going to take me 55 minutes to get into to work. He says, yeah, that, 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 that's a good thing. Clear your head as you're going in. Yeah. And when you finish, clear your head when and, you come where, back. And where was that in relation in, to in, Nor- in North Wales. Oh, no, so, okay. Yeah, so 55 minutes near him, North Wales. And I bought a place in Quinvrin, uh, a little cottage overlooking the hills and valley. And that's where I that's where I was for the first six months, and it was fantastic, brilliant. Christmas time comes about, we're ready to go to the World Club uh, Championships, and it started snowing. So now we got to get from my place to the the airport and speak. So so from in Wales the snow, to in the, okay. in the snow, it's yeah. not going to take you fifty five minutes. I, I'll tell you. <laughs> so now there's a backlog of cars coming from, uh, and it stopped. What do I do? I go on the pavement all the way down because I had a little jeep, four-wheel drive, and I get there to the airport. They're all sitting on a bus. And Bob, as soon as I gave my keys to my mate because he stayed at my house, and I jumped on the bus. Yep. Where's your house? (laughs) I said, that's in North Wales. He said, yeah. If the plane was on time, you would have been left behind. So I said, okay, yeah. He says, make sure you buy a house in England. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Sell the one in <laughs> And is that what you did? No, not for uh, not, not for another two months. Yeah. But, you know, so I did. I sold that one. Had a little tidy profit because I, you know, did some work onto it, in, into it. And I bought a show house in just around the corner from the training ground because I thought, well, training ground, go to the training. No, you have to go back to Anfield. So I had to drive to Anfield right. get, and then get the bus. It was one of those things. 
comedy of errors. Yeah, and how was the uh, how was the football like? Yeah, football's first six months was shocking. In what sense? Well, we uh, we we didn't start well. I didn't start well. Mm-hmm. Were, were you playing from, no, from the get go? No, from the get go, I played three games for the reserves, and that was uh, from uh, March until until May. I played three away games. Uh, Steve Grisovic was there, played the home games, and at the end of that season, you know, we all went to the European Cup. Which Liverpool won in '81 in uh, Parc de Princes in in Paris against Real Madrid. Alan Kennedy goal, and I was in the stands with Craig Johnson and watched this game on going on unfold. And yeah, I could have been sitting on the bench, by the way, because Bob Paisley said, "And yeah, then Robert Di Jaggi on the bench." And I said to him, "Why? Why should you put me on the bench? I've had three games in the reserves. Well, don't you want to play?" I said, well, I'm not going to be playing anyway. I'm be sitting on the bench. So give it to Steve Grisovic. He's been here eight years. He's played a dozen games in the first team. Let him go. Well, then you go tell him. Really? All right. Go, oh, Augie, you're on the bench. That's <laughs> one of those. So he went, and that's how it started. At the end of that season, went on holiday. Whilst on holiday, I found out that uh, Clements had gone. And my Lawyer at that time, Vancouver guy, Ron Perrick, he said to me, now you've got a chance. It's either you or Steve Grizzly. So when we came back, the pre uh, the preseason games, I played every single one. And Steve Grizzly had said, well, that's not good. So I'm going to go and see the boss before the first home game. Yeah. So he says, boss, can I see you? Yep, come in. So when, whenever the, he says, in the dressing room, can I come see you? And all the other guys hear you. When he goes down the corridor into the office, you hear 13 other shoes going down, listening by the door. <laughs> <laughs> this is what happened. Here come in. What do you want, Augie? Well, boss, you know. He said, sit down. Close the door. Boom. What do you want? Boss, um, I've been here eight years. And I've played a dozen games, and you know, and I know that uh, you've got a new goalkeeper, Bruce Robler, but um, I'm the more experienced than that, and I need to be playing games every weekend, and I should be playing games every weekend. He says, "Yep, you'll be playing games every weekend. I've just swapped you from a chap for a chap called Bob Wardle in <laughs> at uh, Shrewsbury Town. Now get your gear and walk off." <laughs> that was it. That was it. And he was out. That was he was out, and Bob Wardle came in. So, boom, I was stuck in the first team. And then the first team for six months, that, you know, 81 season, uh, August, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, August to Christmas, 81, wasn't, wasn't very good. We were 13th in the league, 13 points behind the first uh, first place. What were the, the expectations? Uh, expectations, we should have been up there. Yeah. Um, the defense, not knowing the goalkeeping, um, me messing about too much, which is which was one of the things. Uh, after the Boxing Day game, I get the hook finger from Bob Paisley saying, yeah, in my office. So I go down there and he said it in the dressing room, so you know that there's 13 years like this by the door. Yeah, come in, sit down. How do you think you've played? I said, boss, I could have played better. You know, 
um, yeah, I feel that, yes, some of the some of the goals were my fault, and some of the goals were mistakes between the defence and everything. And, but yes, I can play better. He says, "Well, you better play better, otherwise you find yourself back at crew now. Bugger off!" And that was it. You'll find yourself back at crew, fourth division. Yeah. And that that was a wake up call for me. Mm-hmm. Ronnie Moran uh, explained to me that I mustn't go walking on my hands whilst the game's going on. Do it in the warm up, or you know, sitting on the crossbar whilst the game's going on. Do it in the warm up. Don't do anything in, <laughs> in, in the things you're yeah, already doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what I was doing. <laughs> but he said, what the fuck is he doing now? And I pause down that side and they look back and there, there's me walking on my hands around the box. You know, and then, <laughs> then, no, you mustn't do So do it in the warm-up. And, yeah. So concentrate in the game. Mm-hmm. We ended up going and winning. Well, sorry to, to, to hop in there, but were there specific aspects of your game that you needed to, to evolve based on how the English football was played or... Or was it more of them? Because I'd come from a North American background where you're trying to get entertainment for the fans, the football on the field was the entertainment of the fans in England. Right. So you didn't have to do anything. You just do your job and football fans will know. Yeah. In North America, you're trying to teach them. And I'll come to football games. It's a great sport. Bam, bam, bam. And that was the difference. So I stopped walking on my hands and swinging on the crossbar and doing that sort of thing. And I concentrated on the game. And yes, it helped me. It helped the team. And we ended up winning the league uh, that season from being 13th and 13 points behind the first team. Wow. We ended up winning it uh, on the second, our second last game by three points. So even if we lost the last game, we would have still won. And uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That was in the team. We won the double that year. So first season, I won a double. Oh, Second incredible. season, I was, you know. How, how was season. that uh, feeling as a, as a young kid to be there and all of a sudden you, you're winning the, the English League? That is there. Your dreams put an icing on the cake. Yeah. You've won the league. You've already won the uh, the Milk Cup. And you play the, the that one that was the Milk Cup against Tottenham Hotspur and you're old adversity, uh, adversary is, is Ray Clements. We won all down to them second half when we scored three. And, you know, that was like a Ronnie Whelan show because he scored two against uh, Ray Clements that day. So it was a yeah, good What, what good did thing. the celebrations look like after that? Uh, celebrations, Wembley diving into the swimming pool from the top of the thing. They didn't that. Nobody had seen that before. So <laughs> I showed them how to do it. <laughs> Craig Johnson came after me. <laughs> and all the guys going, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think I heard some stories years ago about that about that last game as well when you had already won the league and you had uh, was it Middlesbrough? Oh, the Middlesbrough, yes, um, Middlesbrough. We had to go and play them after we'd won the league on the Saturday in Middlesbrough, and so we get there on the Tuesday. And we're just having a pre-match, and the boss said, "Yeah." I know you're going to go out and you can have a couple of beers, but just have two. So Terry McDermott comes to us and he said, listen, hey, hey, lad, lad, my mate's opening up a wine bar. Let's go to the wine bar. <laughs> so we went to the wine bar. 
and uh, Chris Rio was involved with it, and there was a nice little stage, and they had, so we up on the platform, the stage dancing around, and of course it's new, and they hadn't done it properly, and as we're dancing around, Terry McDermott went through the floor and twisted his ankle, so now we've got he's out of the game, right? And in those days, there's only two substitutes, yeah. so we went to the game with uh, twelve players, uh, t- twelve fit players, so we're playing. And whilst we're in the bar drinking, the owner of the bar rings up the Middlesbrough players and said, get yourself your money on yourselves because you're going to beat them because <laughs> they're drunk in, in the wine <laughs> bar. Really? Yeah. So they all go and put their money on. Yes, we're going to beat them. Beat yeah. them. Now, they're winning one nil. I think it was a, uh, Sue Ness runs to the, the box, the dugout. The ball's gone in the dugout. And every time we got a corner, the coaching staff says, oh, is that a corner for us? I think we'll have a little touch. And they're drinking whiskey, you see. So soon as comes to the touchline, he goes, I need a drink, I need a drink. So they give him a little cup, and he goes, oh, it's whiskey. <laughs> he throws the ball in, he gets the ball back, bang, straight in the top corner. We draw 1-1. One, one, and the, the Middlesbrough people, they must have gone, oh, what's going on here? They couldn't win. Magic, magic dance. That's mad. Yeah. 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 That, that is mad. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Um, just touching a little bit on the titles obviously that was one of of many that that you won uh you had six league titles in in nine years and i mean let's just put that into into perspective and looking at how how hard of a league it is to win perhaps even harder back then than it is today with with the money that the big clubs have and still extremely hard to win even two leagues in in a few years uh you won three fa cups three league cups um and then obviously the the big one, the European Cup. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand it's probably extremely hard to rank these in in any way, but which one would you say would was your most memorable one, or the one that, that impacted you and your career the most out of all those titles? I would say uh, the first one, and also the European medal, uh, significantly because of of, of w- how it happened took me such a long time to get to Liverpool and and again uh, I I could have been sitting on the bench for two to three years yeah. had not uh, Ray Clements decided to go to another you know challenge in, in London um, and we look at it today and Ray and myself we chat to each other when we see and he said I really did want to stay there and you know, teach you the ropes but you know um, I had this opportunity and I and I took it and I said listen you know, you gave me an opportunity to stamp my authority in there, and you were a legend there, and he still is a legend there. And so he gave me an opportunity, which I thanked him for, you know, in a roundabout way. Yeah. After I told him he was too old and I was going to take his place. <laughs> <laughs> 
so the yeah, so the eighty three eighty four um, season obviously won the the European Cup mm-hmm. and uh, with a pretty epi- epic final, beating AS Roma in, in in the penalty kicks and and I think that's what most well a lot of people know about you and and remember and and bring that up um, and and some of the tactics that you use to distract the the Roma players. However, I'd I'd like to I'm interested in just learning what was this that journey like of that European run that that you had then? Well the run was quite uh, remarkable because we played Benfica in the quarterfinal. Uh, we drew with Benfica at home. And uh, Benfica was one of the, the biggest teams. Big, big ones. Yeah. And then they score first at home in the Stadia de Lutz. And so by half time we're thinking, well, yeah, you know, it's gonna be a right because we were getting really pummeled in the Stadia Lutz. Then all of a sudden Craig Johnson plays it just changed his psyche. Everybody stepped up a gear. He ends up scoring two goals out of three, and we end up beating them three-one. And wow, we go we go through. We get booed off the park, of course, because we you know three second half goals. Then the next game we play against Panathinaikos. Panathinaikos. Now we drew nil-nil at home. Panathinaikos scored the first goal away from them. At their home, and we end up scoring another three goals there. So both sides, we came back from a very poor position to actually beat them in their in their ground. And then the final, uh, the final was just an epic because we got into the bus. And uh, I say, when I do speeches around the world, we were stoned before we got into the stadium. All of us on the bus. Hmm. That means, you know, not smoking anything, not doing anything. We were rocks coming through the, you know, beautiful yeah. window. Where, where was the final play to? In, in Roma. Yeah. In the Olympic Stadium in Rome. And, of course, you've got to go under a tunnel and there's big areas that they can get up and throw. The, and that's what they did. So we went in the stadium and we were waiting to get out onto the pitch. The referees blown a whistle, so we all walked out. We were waiting there for about two minutes and there's no Roma uh, players and there's no uh, no referee. So we soon I said, listen, Sammy Lee, what's that song that Chris Rea sings? Let's, uh, let's get a, a song that we can warm up to. So they came up with, I don't know what it is, but I love it. I don't know what it is, but I want it to stay and I love it, love it. And so we were warming up like it. I don't know what it is. He said, soon he said, carry on singing, carry on singing. Bruce, go and get the door. I don't know what it is, but I love it. I don't know what it is, but I want it to stay. And I went on the door. Knocked on the door. Next minute, they, they opened the door. So they're coming out. He says, look them in now and carry on singing. So you can imagine, you take one of them and you're walking down the tunnel. I don't know what it is, but I love it. I don't know. <laughs> And they thought, they must have they thought, thought you're what, mad, huh? what's going on? You're in our home. English, you bastardos, you know. Yeah. We get out onto the pitch, 1-1, one, one, go into the huddle for for the penalties, and Joe Fagans is smoking Joe. He's on his 13th cigarette. He looks around, he says, right, we're going to go through this again. Phil Neal first. Stevie Nichols second. Sunes. Yes. You third. Looks around. Rush fourth. 
Dalbish, fifth. To which Kenny replies, Boss, you substituted me in 86 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> now he's taking another cigarette. Now he's got two cigarettes. He doesn't know what he <laughs> He looks around. Well, who's supposed to be on? Who came on for you? He looks over there. There's a guy lying on the floor, his legs up in there. Michael Robinson, you've only been on the field eight minutes and you got the cramp. He looks around. Where's, where's Hanson Lawrence? They're on the halfway line waving the fans. Sammy, Sammy Lee. He's looking down underneath the place. Sammy's nowhere to run this to be found. And in the end, it was myself and Alan Kennedy put our hands up. He looks at me, he looks at uh, Alan Kennedy, and he says to me, Bruce, you take the fifth. So I'm going to take the fifth. Okay. Referee comes and throws the coin up, comes down. Liverpool in the first, in the Roma end. Phil Neal now is tying his bootlaces, so Stevie Nickel grabs the ball and runs into the box. Everyone looks, hey boss, it's supposed to be me. And Phil Neal says, drag on his cigarette, let's run with it. <laughs> Stevie Nickel, boom, over the ball. So now I get up and go into the world to the goal. I get this arm around me. Didn't have to look up, because uh, could smell the cigarette. Then here we go. This is my son. Myself and the coaches. The chairman and the directors. The wives and the girlfriends. The captain and the players. And then the 4,000 fans are not going to blame you <laughs> if you can't stop a ball from 12 yards. So I just thought, not going to blame you. Oh, good. That's okay. But as I'm walking away, he says, but try and put them off. And that put stuck in my head. So the first goal of penalty, I went in there, I went in the middle, and I'm thinking, what does he mean by not going to, you know, putting them off? What, what does he mean by that? And normally the first penalty, I stand up straight. Let them, let them make a decision. Boom. I'll stand up. Because if it comes down the middle, that's okay. I move to my right. It clips, as I'm going right, it comes down, straight down the middle, clips my left hand, I go, stupid idiot. Now I'm thinking, my son, you bloody idiot. One one. One nil, sorry. Soon as, uh, sorry, who's in there? Full nil. Puts the ball down. Boom, one one. Well, then Graziani comes up. That's why not that. Bruno Conti comes up and starts dancing around. As if to, as if to say, hello, I'm Bruno Conti. I can score a goal. You know, I've been on. So I put my hands on my knees. And as he came to kick the ball in the net, I swapped him over, yeah. 60s style. And he looked up and he, and he must have seen something, <laughs> boom, over the ball. <laughs> That's the second person put the ball over the wall. Mm -hmm. So there must have been something wrong with that thing. So, yeah, might work. Next penalty, Sunes, top corner. I couldn't get into the goal quick enough because I'm now I'm thinking, come on. Come on, I've been watching you for two days, putting the goal in the same corner, same corner in this stadium every day, because I used to stay there after, for tra after training, I used to sit in the corner. Come on, come on, come on. Top corner went. Top right. I've dived full on, because I know it's going up there. Right. I look over, it goes in the other side. And then I realized when I was watching him take the penalties, it was from the other side of the stadium. <laughs> <laughs> so you go... Yeah, yeah. Right. 
Rashi next. Boom. In the net. We're up. Graziani. Comes walking with a ball under his arm. Puts the arm around the referee. Watch it. And I didn't like it because he's now talking to the referee. I run into the back of the net. And I bit the net. I was going on pepperati. Foolish net. Leave him. Ran to the other side. Bit the net. Now I think to myself, geez, I'm in Rome here. Spaghetti. This, this is spaghetti. So I ran into the goal as if I was, we got spaghetti legs. You know, did my thing and as he crossed himself and he did this. And I knew that he normally put it bottom right. Right? Because uh, watching him, the second penalty and also reversing where I was looking at right. is coming bottom right. Otherwise, I would have gone left. So now I've gone early on this penalty. Did my spaghetti legs. We were, went early on the right and he, I saw his side foot coming that way change like this. Mm-hmm. And he's now hit it with his laces. Boom. It's gone up, up, hit the crossbar, gone over, and I'm running around the field, forgetting that I had to take the fifth penalty. <laughs> as soon as I get there, oh, there's you know, <laughs> Alan Kenny putting the ball there. Yeah. Should be me. Well, it's, if it's taken you this long to get here, you can suffer like the rest of us. Boom. And that's how you won it. Alan Kennedy. Two European Cups, two... You know, yeah. consecutive European Cups that we played in, he was the final final scorer. So my mistake made him a history maker as well. So right. everything comes about people making decisions at the wrong time. <laughs> <laughs> and the other one taking the opportunity, right? The opportunity, yes, yeah, yeah. exactly. Of course. You, you, you get some and you, you give some and you take it away, you know, boom, you, it's, it's like yeah. a trade-off. Yeah, yes, exactly. Uh, you obviously had quite a few different different teammates throughout your spell at uh, at Liverpool and, and a lot of different interesting personalities. Uh, if you were to pick a f- just a few, which ones stand out the most to you? Whether, you know, both in a, in a, in a footballing sense and then also personality-wise. Personality-wise, well, listen, if you go from the top uh, backwards is uh, Kenny Dalglish and Ian Rush up front. Uh, great different personalities, uh, different, and, and what different way? playing styles. Rashi was just a born finisher, and uh, Kenny can graft and work. You know, the best time is with his back to uh, the goal. He was one of the best to hold the ball up with anybody around him, and he could get wriggled past him and get in there. But don't take that away from him. He could get into space and get in uh, the final touch in the goals as well. Uh, behind him. Immediately <laughs> behind them, I put the the finest player that I've ever played with in my life is Graham Souness, because he could play any any position, and he's such a strong character on and off the field, and that's where I put him behind him. With him on either side, you know, going over the years, I'd take John Barnes on the left. Yeah, I would take um, Ronnie Whelan on the right. Um, and if you're playing in the four-four-two, then I play. Yeah, you could play in any amount of people. Um, wide right, you could have uh, Craig Johnson, or you could have uh, a Mac Manum, You know, so that sort of style. If, had I played with Stevie G, he'd be on there instead yeah. of Whelan. But I it was didn't. a few later, a few yeah. years later. Yeah, Whelan, Whelan for me was great. In fullbacks, on the left fullback, I would. Uh, 
you can go with Alan Kennedy, but I also I also played with um, uh, Jimmy Beglin, who I felt that uh, Jimmy Beglin was just as good, if not better, than Alan Kennedy, and would have gone on had he not have broken his leg. Centre backs, I played with many. I yeah. played with Thompson, uh, Thompson, Lawrenson, Hansen, uh, Gillespie, um, Mulby. You know, Jan Mulby, yeah, Jan Mulby. And even in the midfield, I'd put uh, Jan Mulby because the, his passing uh, he accuracy, yeah. brilliant. Um, best centre halves I'd play with was Hansen and probably Lawrenson because of uh, Lawrenson's speed. Hansen's coolness, and then the right fullback uh, for me, probably Stephen Nichol. Yeah, um, fantastic uh, player. You know, he he never you would never think he was an athlete. You think he probably wrote for the newspaper, you know, drink and smoke and you know do all those things, but go and play ninety minutes of uh, football like him is brilliant. And uh, who who would be like the top characters in in the locker room? Everybody had a character in the in the in the locker room. The only one that we, I, I would say, the only two that really kept themselves to themselves uh, was Kenny and and uh, Hansen. Um, Ronnie Whelan had his uh, different you know quirks and everything. Stevie Nickel was a character in his own right. Oh, Rushy is very quiet. Okay, there, obviously because he couldn't speak English, couldn't speak Welsh either. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, they're, those are the guys, you know. Bruno Conti and the smiling Grovelar with an air of confidence at any rate, telling himself or telling the cameraman behind the goal, maybe, because he's always ready for a talk with somebody, knows he's got to save it. The European Cup will be decided in the next few minutes. Conti against Grovelar and Liverpool need a save. Or a Conti miss. When you came towards the the end of your Liverpool career, you then you spent almost 13 years there, and then you uh, you ended up moving to to Southampton. Yeah, I, I spent 13 years at, at Liverpool, and at the end of my time, was a manager came to me and he said, uh, "Bruce, no, he didn't even come to me. I read it in the newspaper. Yeah, that I I was giving, getting get a free transfer, so I had to make my mind up uh, what to do." Um, Southampton came in for me. It was Alan Ball, and uh, so I went to uh, Southampton. Southampton had, had a goalkeeper called Dave Besson. They didn't have another one, so I went along as you know, challenge for the spot. And fortunately for myself, that year, '94, uh, '95, I played 80% of the first team games. How was it to to then be on a on a very different team and on the other side of things? And was it a big transition for you to? To leave Liverpool like that? Yeah, but Liverpool, uh, they they brought in goalkeepers, take over from me and David James, Mike Cooper. And I think if I had stayed with uh, Liverpool and they eased uh, David James in, uh, David James would still be playing goalkeeping there. But uh, because I left, they, they got a goalkeeping coach in who couldn't uh, teach uh, a Liverpool Uh, player to play in gold because he played for uh, the goalkeeping coach played for another team and then he, he was six foot ten and he couldn't come out his six yard box and that was Joe Corrigan 
and I told that to them, you know, why are you getting a person that stays on his line all the time to come and play that teach a Liverpool goalkeeper how to play? So there's differences. Um, going to Southampton, yes, fantastic. The training was brilliant. Uh, we had a great academy, great training area, and uh, we probably one of the best uh, academies in, 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 in Europe at that time. And a lot of players came from it. Had some great players that I played with there, you know, Matt Letizia. Yeah. Brilliant. Ken Moncal, uh, fantastic players. And then you were there for, for two seasons. Like and two seasons, And then after yeah. that, you were at a, 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 few different, a, a few different clubs. How would you sort of, we're not going to go through all of them, but how would you kind of summarize that, that latter part of the, of the uh, career in that sense? The, the latter part of the career happened quickly because I was going through the court cases and for 10 years, uh, eight years after I was accused of match fixing in 94, that, uh, you know, I was going through court cases and no club would. Alan Ball was the only one that uh, in the top flight took me because he asked me, did I do it? And I said, no. So he played me. The rest had, you know, they were wondering, what if he gets uh, uh, found guilty? And that's why they didn't take me on. So the, the clubs after that, they were, you know, okay, we'll take you on for a certain amount of time. And then I used to go go to court again, and then they were, oh, stop, okay. And there was one manager who is a saving grace for me, and his Neil Warnock took me to Plymouth. I went from Plymouth to Oldham, Oldham to Bury, Bury to Sheffield, and that's the kind of guy that I was looking at. Yeah. And he took me to all those places because he, for me, he he asked me that I do it, and I said no. And he said, right, you play. And that was it. How did you personally cope with that, and, and how did you come out of that? People said to me, uh, asked me, uh, how, how can you sleep at night and you're going into court? And it was very easy because I, I said to them, I never did anything wrong. Um, it really summed it up when, when one of the cases, the judge asked me, um, Mr. Grobler, um, you've been doing this for, I think it was going on for six years, but yet you, your same demeanor and everything every time you come into court. Uh, doesn't it get you down? I said, uh, no, Your Honor. He said, well, is it not pressure? I said, no, this is not pressure at all. And he said, can you explain? I said, yes. I said, I come into this courtroom. It's like a football team. Uh, you've got 11 people on the other side trying to put me in jail. And I've got 11 people on my side trying to keep me out of jail. And you're the referee and you've got your clock and uh, those are the referee and the, and the uh, linesman, per se. But yet, in the court case, uh, courthouse, yeah, you've only got uh, probably 30 people, 40 people upstairs. I said, that's not pressure at all. Can you imagine going into Zimbabwe, going into a stadium of 80,000? You're going to play in a stadium of 80,000, and you're the only white man. And if you do anything wrong, do you think you're going to get out of that stadium alive? And he looked at me and he went, wow, I, I see what you mean. And I said, now that is pressure, Your Honor. And that's how I look at it. And I, um, I know, I knew where the, where the accusations came from. It came from my business partner. My business partner tried to screw me. And, you know, today, where is my business partner today? I don't know. He's not, he's nowhere significant. He might be crawling in a hole or somewhere. I don't know. But 
for me. My my family survived it. My girls are good. Uh, they they graduate from uh, universities. Um, my new, I've got a new wife and I've got a new child, and I'm I'm very very happy with my comfortable in my in my life at the moment. Yeah. Uh, what are you What are your goals uh, moving forward? Do you set goals in terms of your coaching career? Yes, I'd like to set the goal again and having the best goalkeeper in the in the league. Uh, but that's going to come with some, you know, pressure again because uh, in this league you've got uh, two other goalkeepers. I think are very very good. And Neuer in uh, New York Cosmos, and uh, probably one of the the Miami keeper. He looks pretty decent. But uh, yeah, I'm looking. You know, I, I'm brought in here as a goalkeeping coach, and I, I want to put goalkeepers that are top level. If my first team goalkeeper comes out with an injury, the second one must take over, and the third one. So they they all got to be in, on very very similar levels. I'd say the same level, and that's what the, that's what my achievement is. To put the goalkeepers in that position that they, if there's anything wrong with it. First goalkeeper, and he's out. The next one can take over with no problem. Okay, we're getting towards the end here, so I'm just going to shoot a set of rapid-fire questions, okay. and then we'll wrap it up. One tip that you would give your 20-year-old self, and one tip that you would give your 30-year-old self. One tip uh, give a 20-year-old self. My managers used to say, "Don't do something stupid," and 20-year-olds do, you know, stupid things at time to time. Uh, 30-year-old self. If you want to stay uh, in the game a lot longer, you know, cut out and cut out and the drinking. And yeah, I mean, I was 30 playing. If I dropped my alcohol content, probably 50 percent, I I could have still been playing. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a pretty good point. But you're looking in good shape, though. Um, the proudest moment of your career? Signing for Liverpool. I think you've mentioned this one, but we'll take it again. Best player you played with? Graham Souness. Best player you played against? Anybody with the ball. I'm a goalkeeper, and anybody can make you look like a fool. Uh, but if you want a, a few names, Hugo Sanchez from uh, Real Madrid, Graham Shaw from Everton, Mark Hughes from Man United, Frank Stapleton from Arsenal and Man United. Best coach you've had? I've had five. Five best coaches. Bob Paisley, Joe Fagan, Kenny Dalglish, Alan Ball, and Reinhard Fabisch. And Reinhard Fabisch was our German coach for the Zimbabwe national team. Do you watch yourself on YouTube? No. Where will we see you in five years? <laughs> watch this space. I don't know. Um, in five years, hopefully, uh, championships here at uh, Ottawa Fury. In five years, many of them. How can people follow you or find out more about you? Uh, I'm not a Twitter. I've never have. Uh, five imposters are there tweeting on my name, so that's not me. I'm on Facebook, and that's it. 
Do you have anything you would like to recommend? Uh, eat eat well, and uh, eat well and be healthy. Last question: Who do you think I should interview on this show? Out of my old colleagues, it's got to be Jan Mogi. Do you know where he is these days? Oh yes, he's in Liverpool. Oh really? He's yes. still there. He's still there. Okay, I'll see if I can reach out. I'm I'm heading that way in in two weeks to to London. So okay. We'll put a couple of calls in. Jan Mogi, for sure. Bruce, thank you so much for, for taking the time. It's been an absolute pleasure, and uh, it'll, it'll be great to to follow the, the, the next steps in your career. I'm sure there there's many more, more years to come. Thank you very much indeed. Cheers. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe to it in iTunes or on the podcast app. Please write a review. If you have any feedback or ideas, feel free to email me at sebastian at coffeeandfootball.com. You can also link up with me via Twitter. It's at coffeesfootball. Check out the coffeeandfootball.com website. There you'll find any related content and additional info on each guest. This show also lives on SoundCloud and Acast. Thanks again. Stay tuned for next week's episode. It'll go up on Monday or Tuesday. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.